we think, you know what, the only solution here is to fight and to kill one another. And we believe at the beginning that we're going to be successful in this venture. And the other side believes it as well. And so we begin on this project of killing. And it turns out that it doesn't work. That's Michael McRae. He's done peace and reconciliation work in Rwanda, Northern Ireland, Israel, Palestine, and South Africa. He's seen firsthand the cultural, social, and racial climates that breed extreme violence and ultimately genocide. I'm Jacob Lewis, and you're listening to Neighbors, a show about what connects us. Today, I wanted to talk to someone who might be able to help us reckon with the political division in our country right now. Michael is a Nashville-based author of the new book, I Am Not Your Enemy, Stories to Transform a Divided World. He calls himself a story practitioner. He uses the power of personal stories to heal harm, make meaning, and create connection. He works most often with the global empathy nonprofit organization Narrative 4, which you'll hear about later in the show. He got his master's degree in Belfast, Northern Ireland, studying conflict resolution and reconciliation. As you'll hear, our conversation starts with the political divide in America, but ends up in a much more intimate place. We'll learn about the scale of sectarian danger, a scale to determine the escalation of violence that can occur based on sectarianism, a helpful tool called the PIN model for conflict resolution, and hear an amazing story of two disparate people connecting in a deeply human way. Hey, Michael, how you doing? I'm doing great, Jacob. How are you? I'm, I'm doing well. I've uh, just been you know, looking at the headlines lately, looking at the <laughs> internet lately, and thinking that since the election, okay, we've, we've changed parties in this country, but what's, you know, what's really going to change about the, the tenor of the conversation? And then I thought, you know, I'll ask Michael. He's, he's a guy who's done a lot, thought a lot about conflict and division and conflict resolution. And so I thought I would just ask you, what are you seeing right now? What, what's the problem right now? Well, it's. I want to start, I guess, by acknowledging my own limitations here. I, I don't know how to fix America, so I want to just start by saying that. Dang. Uh, yeah, I know. I just want to let all the the listeners know. I do not. I do not have the answers. Uh, it doesn't really seem like anyone does. Um, yeah. And uh, I have. What I feel like I have is the benefit of having traveled the world to areas of deep division to learn principles of what it takes to live well together with people that are that might be difficult to live well with <laughs> uh, and to be able to say, how are we going to do this without violence um, or in the aftermath of violence? And so I feel like I've, I've learned some helpful principles that I that I hope could help us here in the in the U.S. But, um, you know, what's my assessment? My assessment is probably not all that different than a lot of people's, which is like, we're, it's, it's a bit of a dark time. Um, you know, maybe 75 million people are feeling more hopeful right now, <laughs> but about 70 million are not. Um, and you know, it w- could have gone the other way. We are deeply, deeply divided and, and it goes deeper than just, Oh, we don't know how to talk to e- each other. I think that is true, but I think that it's true because one of the things that we seem to be realizing more and more is that there is a sense to which the country, half the country has has very different values and worldview from the other. Each side sees the other's worldview as destructive <laughs> uh, and, um, 
and a betrayal of what it is to be American. Um, mm. And and I think both sides claim that about the other with with a true sense of sincerity. Um, you know, I think it's too easy to, to just be like, well, you know, and, and I'll say right off the bat, I voted for Joe Biden. I'm not a fan of Donald Trump. And so it'd be easy for me to say, well, Trump supporters are the problem with America. Uh, and perhaps I believe that that's too strong and simple a statement. But I think some people on the left might say that. Whereas what we have to remember is people on the right are saying the very same thing about people on the left. And that's what we have to figure out how to deal with that, that we both we both have constructed pretty uh singular stories about each other you know that trump supporters are this or biden supporters are, are this or the left is this the right is that and and whereas i think there is truth in some ways in those single stories they're always more complicated than that you know the nigerian novelist chimamanda adichie um taught us that in her amazing ted talk the danger of a single story where she says a single story's you know, the ones that depict only one side to a person or to an event, um, are, it's the problem with them is not that they're necessarily untrue. It's that they're incomplete. You know, they're almost always based in some some part of the truth. But it's what we have to remember is that it's only a part of the truth. Uh, and we, we have to be really intentional to seek out what are other parts of the truth so that we can have a, a fuller vision uh, of who people are. Um, yeah. So, so, I mean, how... Do- you know, you said that there, we have a story, we're each telling singular stories about the other side. And in America, we have two sides. And it seems that um, as I think about Rwanda, as I think about South Africa, Israel, Palestine, and uh, the Northern Ireland, it, it seems like there's typically always two sides. What have you seen that works to get past, to, to break that kind of single story othering? Yeah. Well, one is, in a sense, to recognize that there are actually always more than two sides. I think it, for simplicity, say, it can be helpful just to talk about the left or the right, or Democrats and Republicans, or Israelis and Palestinians. But speaking in plurals is a really helpful practice, I think, when we're talking about peace building, to remember that you know, on the left or the right, there are hundreds of different ways of thinking around what it is to be American, what it is uh, to be politically active. You've got people on the right who voted for Trump, who hate Trump, who think he was is terrible, but who think that he will get us closer to the America that they think we need than Biden would. And people on the left who thought Biden is a terrible candidate, but that he was going to get us closer to the America that they wanted than Trump would have. And then you've got people who would would almost worship each of those candidates. And so it's, yeah. there's always a multiplicity. And I think that was that's true in every conflict that I've studied. And what usually helps is trying to to bring a multiplicity of those voices into kind of public awareness and into our own imagination to not let things be quite as simple as we'd like them to be. And what partly, honestly, this is the the darker side of my imagination, I guess, what partly is concerning to me right now is that in all of those cases that I named, Northern Ireland, Israel, Palestine, South Africa, Rwanda, the possibility of peace came about after decades of violence. And I think that is, that's the part that is, that has my antenna up quite high, is that in a lot of cases around the world, these peace deals that we that we can talk about, 93 Oslo Accords in Israel, Palestine, the 98 Good Friday Agreement in Northern Ireland, the Dayton Accords for Bosnia, these happen after there has been a lot of killing 
and where it gets to what they call in conflict resolution theory, a mutually hurting stalemate where people realize the, the way it often builds is we have this division, we have this animosity, we, we fear each other, that fear leads to hate. We think, you know what, the only solution here is to fight and to kill one another. And we believe at the beginning that we're going to be successful in this venture, and the other side believes it as well. And so we begin on this project of killing, and it turns out that it doesn't work that we don't actually get where we want to go. And so after years and years of this, people become exhausted of it. They become disillusioned and they say, okay, there's got to be a different way. Let's find another way. And so my fear is that America is heading down that path. My hope is that we will be able to look and see, we know how that story is going to end. (laughs) Neither side is going to get what they think they're going to get. The violence is not going to lead toward the salvation of America. One side is not going to just destroy the other. No project has ever been served by one side advocating for the annihilation of the other. <laughs> and I think that's a, an element of where it feels like we are in the United States, where there, there are voices on both sides who just think the country would be better if this whole other group was gone. And, and I just, I've never seen anything get better in the world with that way of thinking. And so I guess my hope right now is to say, if we know that the the path toward violence is only going to lead to uh, a lot of death and no solution, then what if we skip the death part and we just <laughs> we find a way to get to the solution? And that's far easier said than done, of course, but that's where I'm thinking right now. In Michael's book, he shares a foreboding tool called the scale of sectarian danger. It was conceived of after the Troubles in Northern Ireland. And if you're not familiar, the Troubles refers to the conflict that started in the 1960s between those who wanted to stay a part of Great Britain and those who wanted to separate. These dividing lines also happen to fall mostly between Protestants and Catholics. So it's called The Scale of Sectarian Danger. There's a book called Moving Beyond Sectarianism that was written in the context of the Northern Irish conflict called The Troubles. And so in the context of Northern Ireland, these two scholars, Joseph Lichty and Cecilia Clegg, wrote a, created a scale of sectarian danger. This is a helpful chart, 11-point chart to map where are we in our levels of dangerousness regarding our sectarian beliefs about the other, our, our dividing line. So They start with a simple and seemingly and potentially innocuous statement at number one and moves to 11. So these are the ones in order. Number one, we are different. We believe differently. Number two, we are right. Number three, we are right and you are wrong. Number four, you are a less adequate version of what we are. Number five, you are not what you say you are. Number six, We are, in fact, what you say you are. Number seven, what you are doing is evil. Number eight, you are so wrong that you forfeit ordinary rights. Number nine, you are less than human. Number 10, you are evil. And number 11, you are demonic. Hmm. So I point out in the next paragraph that some of these statements are really necessary and reasonable, like we are different, we believe differently. Great. Like, I can say that about my wife. (laughs) That's perfectly (laughs) fine. You know, that number two, we are right. Of course. There's a line from my friend Padre Gotuma in his book, In the Shelter, that says, most people do what seems reasonable to them at the time, most of the time. 
which I find really helpful, especially when thinking about peace, that most people are doing what they think is reasonable or what is right. We do Generally, we act in ways that we perceive to be right. So that second statement is a perfectly legitimate one. We are right. Of course, we believe that. And even number three, we're right and you are wrong. You know, that if you tell me, <laughs> I believe women should not have the same rights as men, I would say, I believe they should, and I'm right and you're wrong. That's a, <laughs> I feel totally fine making that statement. And even something like what you are doing is evil. I think it's a really important practice to be able to look and examine the world around us and say, this is an evil practice. Mm-hmm. Killing a million uh, Tutsis in, and in three months in Rwanda is an evil practice. So we have to be able to call that out. But then you have other statements on there. Like, for instance, you're so wrong that you forfeit ordinary rights. You are less than human. You are evil. You are demonic. These are the ones that are ripe with violent potential because Mm -hmm. whenever we're getting down to a place of denying people rights because of who they are, of saying that you are not actually as human as I am, that not just what you're doing is evil, but you yourself are the incarnation of evil and you are, in fact, a demon, then that's when it becomes incredibly easier to start killing people. In many ways, I suppose, a basic tenet of peace building is that we try to avoid killing each other. <laughs> and so I think that's a foundational principle. In, in reconciliation theory, there's kind of one theory that talks about three different levels of reconciliation, minimal, moderate, and maximal. And that minimal reconciliation looks like nonviolent coexistence. We're not getting along necessarily, but we're just agreeing to live together and not kill each other. And that is legitimately a good thing. You know, like that is, <laughs> that is especially after decades of violent conflict, like in Northern Ireland, there was a 30 year conflict called the Troubles. Um, and when they signed a peace accord in 98 and the bombing stopped, like that is progress. That is a level of reconciliation. We are nonviolently coexisting. And once you've laid that foundation, you can get to the moderate level, which is called mutually beneficial cooperation, that we'll start, we will work together for each other's mutual benefit, not because necessarily that I like you or I love you, or I want a lot of good things for you, but working together with you is actually benefiting me and my side. And that's another level where we're actually engaging one another. And then the third kind of maximal level is the idea of beloved community, that we're actually now in a place where we can we're interested in each other's goodwill, that we're interested in affection, that we're interested in trust uh, and friendship, and that, that, but that we're not going to get there without the other two levels. And you can see this at a micro level as well. When you have a, a big fight with your spouse, sometimes the first step is just, can we even sit in the same room and not talk? <laughs> like we've been yelling at each other. Are we <laughs> able to just sit here and not yell at each other? And that's yeah. a really important step. Then are we able to maybe talk about what our child needs? We're co-parenting, we're cooperating because it's beneficial to do that. And then we get to a place where we're actually loving on each other again, and there's affection and trust is being built. And so you can see these levels even at a very small level, but they the principles apply, I think, in larger levels as well. Michael has an example of people working up these levels from just coexisting to actually opening up and trusting. In Israel-Palestine, there is a group called the Bereaved Parents Circle. These are parents on both sides of a terrible conflict. Their common bond is that their children were casualties of that conflict. You've got somebody like Arami El-Hanan, who is an Israeli father uh, whose father survived Auschwitz, but his daughter didn't survive her 14th birthday. She was killed by a suicide bomber, a Palestinian suicide bomber. 
Mm. And then you've got Bassam Aramin, who's a Palestinian who spent time in Israeli prison for resistance during uh, the Palestinian uprising, and who, when he was released from prison, thought there's going to be a time for peace now. And so he he got married and had kids, and his 10-year-old daughter, Abir, was shot in the back of the head and on her way home from school by an Israeli soldier and killed. And they joined what is called the Parent Circle, where it's parents and family members like them who have lost loved ones, who have paid the highest price, um, who are saying it is actually because of our shared sense of loss that we have a duty to do everything that we can to try to make sure that this pain doesn't visit other households, that doesn't happen to other people. They they go and speak about their stories. It's storytelling um, work, which is the stuff that I'm most interested in is what's the role of storytelling and peace building. But they will go around to high schools and to colleges, to conferences, to any anywhere that anyone will listen to them to tell their story about what it is to lose in conflict and what that compels them to do. And so I think there are there are lots and lots of ways, you know, trauma healing, trauma therapists are a crucial part of peace building. How do we help people heal from trauma? Because one of the yeah. things that we know is that trauma that is not transformed is transferred. The other way it's often said is hurt people hurt people. Mm-hmm. Um, that when I have not dealt with the, the pain that has been visited upon me, I will export that <laughs> somewhere else. And, uh, yeah. and that's a recipe for continued conflict. And so we have to help people heal uh, to empower people to heal themselves as well. And yeah, there are so many different ways that the work of, of peace shows up. indispensable principle in peace and working for some kind of reconciled society is the practice of empathy. And I cannot recall a story that I've encountered of, of a division reconciled without the practice of empathy. And what I, what I mean by that is a central component of empathy is the idea of perspective taking, that it, it is to imagine what it is to be the other person to to dethrone ourselves from the center of the world <laughs> and let somebody else's uh, imagination and perspective sit there for a minute to to remember as you know as my friend Padraig has said most people do what seems reasonable to them at the time most of the time yeah so an empathic question is what how would i need to see the world for this person's perspective to be reasonable you know like what would need to be my story for this to be to seem reasonable and to try to do that that kind of project of the imagination. And I think that taking on that perspective and then trying to imagine the feelings, the stories that go with that, but then to have that empathy compel us to take action in some way and hopefully uh, a compassionate action for improving something in the world. Like that is, those are the building blocks of peace. You know, mm-hmm. that it is, it is possible to nonviolently coexist without the practice of empathy. <laughs> like so we can keep our distance and just say, look, you stay on your side of the street, I'm gonna stay on mine. We won't kill each other, but we don't actually have to have a conversation. And like that can last for a little while, but that's the lowest level. And it's a it's then only one level removed from violent conflict. <laughs> and if we're wanting to get farther away from the violent conflict, from the, the vitriol and the animosity, then we're looking to move into that moderate and that maximal level of reconciliation. And you don't get there 
without trying to say, okay, I, I need to imagine what it is to be the other person. And why is it that they care so much about this? What mm-hmm. are their values? Uh, and that can move us toward something that sounds a little bit more like peace, I think. All right, coming up after the break, what if you're wrong? And the methodology that got a man who owns 250 guns and helped auction off the gun that killed Trayvon Martin to deeply connect with a woman who lost her daughter to gun violence. Stay with us. Michael penned an essay called How to Dismantle an Enemy. And here he teaches us how to do just that. As I boiled it down, I I came up with three things that I think are relevant to what we're talking about. First thing that you need in order to dismantle an enemy is proximity. We have to shorten the distance between each other, which is one reason why I'm so compelled by storytelling. And there's an old saying that the shortest distance between two people is a story. Uh, that we have to actually draw closer to the thing that we're targeting, the thing we're afraid of, the thing that we that we uh, believe is harmful. Uh, but that won't be good enough, right? Because for most of human history, proximity is what you needed in order to be able to kill each other. <laughs> you know, they, mm-hmm. the old saying about Bunker Hill, don't shoot till you see the whites in their eyes. You know, they wait till they get close enough to really see their eye color. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, because we got to get within stabbing range. And, or you can look at a place like prison and see guards and prisoners in close proximity, but there's not beloved community happening <laughs> between guards and prisoners, even though they're very proximate. So proximity isn't enough. You also need humility. There's an old Snoopy comic where Charlie Brown approaches Snoopy, who's riding on his doghouse, and, and he says, I hear you're writing a book of theology, and says, I hope you have a good title. And Snoopy says, I have the best title. And his title for his book of theology is, has it ever occurred to you that you might be wrong? Um, and I, I think it's such a lovely the- theological title, but I think it's a great title for a book on how is it that we build peace with each other, is yeah. that we have to have this question in our mind, has it ever occurred to us that we might be wrong, both about what we assume in the narrative of the other, but also what we assume to be true in our own stories. Has it ever occurred to us that we might be wrong? And then that leads us to the third point, which is curiosity, that once we've gotten close enough to hear the stories, humble enough to realize that we might be wrong, we actually have to cultivate curiosity that says, there's something I can probably learn from you about what it is to be an American, about what it is to live well in the world. What is it that I can find? It may be that 90%, 95, 98, 99% of what you say, I disagree with, but it might be that there's some kernel of wisdom in there that my curiosity could help me find. And so these three things, I think, are really crucial. Also then remembering that, as James Baldwin said, and I, I don't know if I'll get the quote exactly right, but it's something like, we can disagree and still love each other unless our disagreement is rooted in my oppression. <laughs> and mm-hmm. to say that there are things, yeah. compromise, I think, is a virtue of peace. Like we do, We cannot build peace without compromise. But there are some things that you don't compromise on, you know, and and one place with that is I will not compromise uh, on my right not to be oppressed. I'm not going to compromise on my right to be safe and secure. Like these things are fundamental to being alive and to thriving in the world. And so, you know, look, yes, there are some things that we could say, okay, that's your opinion. This is my opinion. But we're not going to love each other in that disagreement if your opinion is part of what is actively causing harm to me or the people that I love. Another quote from Padraig that's been really helpful for me 
is some people's theories are other people's traumas. Some people's mm. theories are other people's traumas. And it's yeah. been such a revelation to remember that all of the things that we believe, we think we might say, look, this is just what I think about politics. Well, it's never just what you think about politics. All politics are personal because they will eventually land on the on a person's body. <laughs> eventually, yeah. all of the policies and the theories that we espouse, our theological beliefs, everything will eventually land somewhere and it hits somebody. And it either lands in them in a way that is healing and helpful like medicine, or it lands like a weapon. It, people should not be expected to compromise on things that, on theories <laughs> that are actually causing them trauma. And I think that's a really important thing for us to remember. I do a lot of story consulting work at the moment, and one of the organizations that I work with is called Narrative Four. And I was—I got to be a, a staff member there for a couple of years, and then transitioned out when my son Rowan was born earlier this year. But Narrative Four is a global nonprofit, essentially, that uses the exchanging of personal stories as a tool for building empathy. And so, the structure of this of what we call the story exchange is: we get a group of people together to sit in a circle. Each person gets paired up with another person and they didn't have time to go off just the two of them and tell one another a true story from their life, perhaps around a theme or a prompt. And they each listen really deeply to each other's stories. And then they come back and everyone then sits in a circle together and each person retells their partner's story in first person pronouns as if their partner's story happened to them. So if you and I were part of this big circle and we got paired up, we would go off, we would tell each other true stories. But when we come back in the circle in front of everyone, I would then say, hi, my name is Jacob Lewis. And so my son is, and I would just tell this whole story in I language as if your story happened to me. And you would say, hi, my name is Michael and so on and so forth. Wow. So it's a really powerful, simple, but powerful tool for sparking empathy and what we call flexing the, the empathy muscle. That we think of empathy as something that you actually can get better at the more that you use it. Just like mm -hmm. you go to the gym and do kind of reps on the weight machine, you can do empathy reps and, and build up your, your muscle mass in that way. But one of the examples that I think is helpful, and it kind of ties back into conflict resolution, comes from a, a story exchange that Narrative 4 did a few years ago on gun violence and, and kind of gun um, rights. And the idea was that we were going to bring people together who you know, half the group maybe would say that they wanted to see restrictions on guns and the other half didn't. And so just getting on opposite sides of that conversation, but all of whom had a stake and it couldn't just be someone who was a bit divorced from it, but everyone had a stake in that conversation. So one of the stories that, that emerged, one of the pairings was a guy named Todd and a woman named Carolyn. And Todd owns about 250 guns and how he wow. worked, his website orchestrated the sale of George Zimmerman's gun that killed Trayvon Martin. Mm -hmm. His partner in the story exchange was a woman named Carolyn who held her daughter in her arms as her daughter bled out after being shot in a mall shooting in Utah, I believe it was. Mm. So she marches in Washington for gun restrictions. Todd does not share that position. So they had polar opposite positions on this conversation, but they got put together as a story exchange partner. And one of the things that came out in their stories 
ties into some a helpful principle that I think uh, is worth naming from conflict resolution, which is what's called the Penn diagram. So you can think of it like a pyramid. And at the very top, the smallest level of that pyramid is called positions. So that's the P. And then yeah. the, the middle level is interest. That's the I. And then the bottom level, uh, the largest level are needs. And that's the N, P-I-N, the Penn diagram. Position, um, interest, needs. Correct. So the idea is that most of the time in conflict, what we end up doing is debating and yelling at each other over our position. I believe this about immigration. Well, I believe this about immigration and nothing ever changes. In fact, we usually just get more entrenched in our positions. And what usually helps us transcend conflict and find a better way to be together is to get down to the level of needs. That's the largest level that we can work with because it's where we will likely have the most in common. We may have nothing in common in our positions, but it actually may be that we have a lot in common with our needs. And one way that this is evident is in the case of Carolyn and Todd. So they have polar opposite positions, but when they started telling their stories to one another, what they realized was that Todd knew this already, but Todd was uh, abused by his father growing up and it was an ongoing abuse. And when Todd finally grabbed a gun and pointed it at his father, the, the abuse stopped <laughs> and wow. Todd learned guns keep me safe. Mm -hmm. Carolyn ha held her daughter as she died from gun violence. So she wants there to be less guns because that will keep her safe and keep her family safe. And so what you realize then is that their need is in fact the same. The need is safety and security from yep. harm. <laughs> yep. And it is manifesting in polar opposite positions um, that are in a sense, not reconcilable positions, but when you get down to that level of what is the need that you have? Why? Tell me the story of why you believe what you believe. You know, if you just say, well, why do you believe this? You can get someone just to start spouting off all the data and all the science or all the, even just the values they have. But even when they tell you the values, you say, but why do you value that? Why do you care about that? And you get into the, the language of story. That's what changes the conversation because store, we can connect to stories, even if we haven't had that, even if it, the conclusion that person comes to is a different conclusion that we have. When I hear Todd's story, I don't agree with his position on guns, but when I hear his story, I think, you know what? I get it. <laughs> I understand why you're building this arsenal. I understand how that seed of truth, a gun can keep me safe, has now built its way into this thing that is bigger than you <laughs> and that maybe has gone too far, <laughs> uh, but that it started with something that was really helpful for you. And that that helps me to know that. And I so I think that's an important thing for us to think about as we're having these conversations with people that we don't agree with, that we find actually harmful, is to say, what would the conversation look like if I could navigate us down to the level of the needs and find out what's really going on down here? Well, Michael McRae, thanks so much for talking with me today. Absolutely, Jacob. Thanks for having me on. It's a delight. Michael's newest book is called I Am Not Your Enemy, Stories to Transform a Divided World. Links to thoughts on the PIN diagram he mentioned, the scale of sectarian danger, and the organization Narrative 4 are in the show notes in your podcast app or at neighborspodcast.com. Neighbors is produced by me, Jacob Lewis. Our sonic logo comes from DeFacto Sound and Dallas Taylor, who produced the podcast 20,000 Hertz. You can support Neighbors at patreon.com slash neighbors. I'm Jacob Lewis, and I'm reminding you to get to know your neighbors. Neighbors is a production of Great Feeling Studios. Oh.